Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Most importantly, it's how much they care about their accounts. You can't teach that. You can't teach somebody to care about their accounts. It's a natural state of being to care about what your client is going through. The product is just an end result. The sale is an end result. Whenever we bring somebody on, the first thing I always say is don't worry about the sales. Don't worry about the sales. They'll come. Worry about the process. Worry about the market. Worry about understanding the product. Worry about your clients. Worry about understanding your clients. Worry about what you're going to say to them when they ask you a question that you, you don't know the exact answer. There's so many things you have to learn. If your process is good, your sales will naturally come. And I say this about any business in the world. It is not just our industry. Born in Russia, Jake and his family immigrated to the United States when he was three years old. With $500 in their pockets and with his aunt as their sponsor, they lived in a one-bedroom apartment with another family of four. Raised in the Chicago suburb of Northbrook, Jake knew his whole life he would be in sales. He feels his only real talent is being able to read and understand people. At 15 years old, one year before you were legally able to work in Illinois, Jake was hired for a job at Circuit City part-time. In his first year, he had the second largest sales volume in the store. By 16, he had the highest warranty sales. Just into college, Jake was recruited by a real estate developer and then by the GM of a Nissan dealership where he achieved the highest volume in sales every month since his hire. In 2006, Jake joined Axis Group. Under the guidance of the company owner, Joel Gross, he learned all about the promotional products industry. After realizing the industry was veering online, Jake convinced Joel to give him a small investment to start the company, Promo Dealer. Jake borrowed a book on HTML coding from a friend and brought in $10,000 on the first day the website was live. Within two years, Promo Dealer was generating over $5 million per year in annual revenue with a 90% reorder rate from their customers. Our conversation ranges from AdWords and pay-per-click to social platforms for advertising, Amazon, Walmart, and how being an immigrant shaped his life. Today's episode is courtesy of CommonSkew, the effortless business management platform that empowers you to process more orders and grow your business. For more information or to start your free trial, visit commonskew.com. Eleven years ago, you knew that online commerce in the B2B space would pick up, and many people probably sensed this, but you decided to bank on it. So I have to ask the one question that's likely on everyone's mind after I read your bio. How did you get to $5 million in sales in two years' time? You have to look at 11 years ago almost in a vacuum, um, and you have to look at it from 11 years ahead. And so right now we're in 2017, and you have to, what is it? 2005, six, something like right. that. Right. At that time, B2B commerce, it was going into a level where people were investing huge sums of money specifically into AdWords, right? And so back then, all the social stuff wasn't really around. It was still popular. There were Facebooks and the MySpaces back then, if you remember, but it wasn't what it was today. The other change from today is 11 years ago, I was freaking 20 years old. Right. I was in college, <laughs> right? So when right. you look at that in a vacuum um, on itself, what a risk for me back then was is nothing compared to what a risk for me today is. And so taking a bigger risk back then is a lot simpler when you don't have all that much to risk. <laughs> right. So and that's the truth. I mean, there there are so many different types of risks that I, t I still take risks today. But the type of risks that are taken back then are so different than what it is today. Sure. And I, I remembered seeing a few companies 
advertising online and they were not very good. I mean, and, and it doesn't, it, not that the companies themselves weren't very good. They just weren't good at advertising. Like if, if you're familiar at all with AdWords, you have to write your own ads. You have to create your own campaigns. And I could tell that the text that they were using for ads was just not what people are searching. It just didn't make sense. So we had a very particular product back then, flash drives. Um, they're still very popular now, uh, branded flash drives. But back then, they were like blowing up. Everybody had to have flash drives. They were all over schools. They were all over big corporations. And, and they were completely multifunctional. So they weren't only used for branding or for marketing purposes. They were used for everything, for cataloging, for uploading uh, info sheets, whatever it is. So the biggest risk I took was banking on the fact that flash drives were going to be huge. And so right. when we began advertising, it didn't take all that much, uh, all that many conversions to see some profitability. I mean, in our first day of advertising, keep in mind the way the website started was I borrowed an HTML book, an elementary HTML book. I'm talking like for first graders when I was 20 years old to build the ugliest website you have ever seen in your life. And there was no such thing as like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to create these landing pages and people are going to convert. I wasn't even thinking about conversions. I was like, can I just sell some damn flash drives? <laughs> we... We put money out there on our first day. I think I spent a few hundred bucks on advertising, probably even less. And we got a $10,000 flash drive order. Wow. So a big reason for that leap in sales had was capitalizing on this particular trend of a product. Do you con yep. Is that a continual practice that you do now? And, and you're hopping on similar trends even to this day? Great question. So absolutely. Um, whenever you see a trend, you don't have much time to capitalize on that trend. That's true in any business. We're a very competitive uh, country. I don't want to say market. We're a competitive country. And right. so it's very rare when you're going to see even if you go into the restaurant realm and you'll see like one restaurant from an area of the world that you never even would have seen. And then you're like, oh my gosh, Peruvian, who the hell would have, oh yeah, this is a great place. In like within two years, there's like three or four other Peruvian restaurants, right? And so right. you have to capitalize on trends, you have to be incredibly quick and you have to be incredibly aggressive. And so, yes, we, we do do the same. An excellent example of it is um, fidget spinners. Yeah. So what are we talking, six months those things lasted, if that? I mean, and I'm talking about where the demand was just insane. I remember we started advertising fidget spinners. We literally had like a week until our competition got so high that it almost became unprofitable mm. in fidget spinners. Wow. And this happens all the time, and that's okay. That's that's the realm of society and how you can make money in a very specific amount of time, and that's okay. It keeps everyone competitive. But yeah, it's certainly what we do today. Have you picked up some keys to trend spotting? I mean, that that is a tough, that is a really tough angle to do, and I'm sure yeah. a lot of this has to do with also risking on a few bets. You know, you're not you're not sure. putting it all in on one bet. There were two or three or four trends. But I've always been puzzled by the trend spotting because the gap in trends from, from the retail space and the B2B space keeps getting smaller and smaller. It, keeps, it, keeps, it used to be a wide gulf and trends didn't really impact the industry. You know, I'm talking 10 to 15 years ago as much as they are now. But trends have really gotten close, particularly in apparel. Are there any secrets to spotting trends? Here's the deal. Here's my deal with trends. I don't say it's the deal with trends, but trend spotting is not going to be our one, two, five, ten year outlook. 
Transponding is just an add-on. We're at the point now with advertising that adding any particular item or keyword or, you know, whatever the case may be, it's not quite that difficult for us. And so that obviously that takes years and years of building and you have to create landing, blah, 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 blah. But to make Transponding your key source of business is an incredibly difficult thing. Yeah. It's an incredible, and like you said, there's there aren't that many gaps in like where one thing's popular and then it becomes unpopular. You you cannot possibly run your projections hoping that there are going to be new trends that increase your revenues. It does not happen that way. How has the e-commerce side of the business changed from when you first started to where we are at today? I love this question, and the reason I love this question is because. The e-commerce side has changed a lot. People's wants and needs have changed a lot. I look at it as we are all running the Amazonian marketplace. Okay. <laughs> Amazon changed the perception of the e-commerce world for everybody. Yes. For yes. every person that has ever looked online, shopped online, bought online, received online, returned online. It has changed the perception of the online marketplace for everybody. And that, in my opinion, is actually a very good thing. I don't mm. see it at all as a negative to the market, at all. Amazon has increased buyer confidence yeah. to an incredible degree. Great point. Incredible degree. So people now, when they get a good experience, aren't pleased by it. They expect it. And they expect it because it's what they've been doing for years. And so when a customer now hits our website, they expect to get their order on time. They expect for it to be perfect. They expect that there aren't going to be any issues. And they expect to get money back if there is an issue. It, Amazon has changed expectations forever. Forever. And that is not a bad thing. Your subtext there is it's impacted loyalty. So customers, oh, yeah. when they have that experience, it's a natural reflex because of Amazon that they're going to go back to that company and buy again and again. 100%. And the amazing thing about it is you only have to meet the customer's expectations. Now, the issue with that is their expectations are very high, of course. But you, yeah. <laughs> if you meet their expectations, they will come back to you. It is a very, very simple method. I buy from you. Yeah. If you make it easy for me to buy from you, I will buy from you again. If you make it easy for me to rebuy from you, I will probably rebuy more often. It's a very, very simple method. Very simple. Since we're on this subject of how the e-commerce business has changed, how has the investment side of it changed in terms of AdWords and where you're investing money and the, the impact now? I'm sure it's dramatically different where you're spending money now than where it was? Absolutely. AdWords took up close to 90 to 95% of our advertising spend for the first five to seven years of our business. Seriously, mm. 90 wow. to 95%. In the last five years, they are down to about 40%. Mm. And the reason for that is number one, the competition on AdWords is app is astrological. Not a bad thing. It it works for some markets, but it is it's, it's incredible the competition now on AdWords. Number two, there's a lot of places that you can spend money that will get you a deeper, immediate relationship with your customer. Now, what do I mean by that? AdWords is a I'm going to shop. I'm going to find the cheapest price and maybe I'm going to buy. 
there is really no lasting impression with AdWords. You can make your landing page as wonderful as, as you'd like to make it. There is not going to be a any sort of personal connection with the brand when you're searching online and, and clicking on ads. When you spend your money socially in social platforms, you have a little bit more of an understanding of the brand and the concept. So when I'm searching, I'm a big sports guy. So when I'm searching on, you know, I'm going through ESPN and, you know, now you have all of these, like the cookies are following me. And so now I have like, you know, anything that's related to ESPN, I have like ABC News and CNN, everything, everything's following me now, no matter where I go. And God forbid I search a product, a watch or something. I have like every other website now showing me watches at discount prices. However, when I'm going through, for example, Instagram and I'm liking, you know, my fiance's pictures who, by the way, my bio says we're married, but we're, we're, I wrote that bio for you because I thought it was going to be used in a few weeks. So we're not getting married till next Sunday, but right now she's my fiance. So yeah, so, um, we, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, search through Instagram or whatever. And, you know, she's showing me a picture of something and boom pops up like, a new shirt that I, that just out of how they would even know that I would be interested in a shirt like that. Right, and right. I click it and I'm instantly connecting with the brand and, oh my gosh, these pictures look similar to the pictures I take. And, you know, and the, the connection that looms when you're going social is completely different. I'm not even saying that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that the you have a much deeper connection in a social platform than you will a pay-per-click platform, which I still highly believe in. Makes sense. I still believe in the in the pay-per-click platform. Wow. Okay. Makes sense. In terms of this industry, if you had to rank the most profitable space where you're playing in, would that be Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram? Do you do you tier them that way? Oh, great question. That question comes with a ton of really necessary support information. So I remember, um, and I think me and you had a conversation about this. Somebody asked what the best way for budgeting an AdWords campaign would Mm. be and how people recommend spending on AdWords. And I think think, uh, you might have answered. A lot of people answered. And uh, a lot of the answers were, well, AdWords doesn't necessarily, you know, create long-lasting relationships. And it won't, you know, I've seen people spend a lot of money and lose a lot of money and so on and so forth. That is such a loaded question because Mm -hmm. AdWords will bring you the traffic. What you do with that traffic and how you spend your money on nurturing that traffic is so much more important than how how you spend your money gaining the traffic. Mm, great point. See what yeah, I'm saying? Great point. To say that, yeah, you can spend a ton of money on AdWords and you're going to lose all your money. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course you can. Of course you can. You can spend a ton of money on a stick shift sports car, but if you don't know how to drive stick shift, it doesn't matter. You're going to crash the damn thing. Right. So getting the traffic and then nurturing the traffic and then closing the traffic and then making sure that traffic reorders and blah, 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 so on. It's such a loaded question because AdWords will bring you the traffic. AdWords isn't going to guarantee that you're going to close right. it. A lot of people think that, oh my gosh, I've seen people spend 10000 and then they lose 10000 Well, what they do after the traffic comes to the website is equally as important as how they gain that traffic. Yeah. I'm sorry to go back to your question yes. and ranking. I still would put AdWords as one or two up there and Instagram is one or two up there. And I'd, I'd say Instagram slash Facebook because now it's the same company and you can, you know, and right. so I would say Instagram and Facebook, I would still put as two or three in my spend. AdWords is still going to be my number one platform. Interesting. Wow. As I said, they take, you know, they take what, 40, 50% of our spend now. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's just and, one platform. And I, as I asked that question too, I can, I can see in your mind, you just fragmented it into so many subtexts and conversations over there. <laughs> I'm sure we could spend this entire episode <laughs> on ad spending. Right. 
you have to take your money and make sure that it works best for you. Maybe, maybe an answer is zero ad spend, but putting that money towards nurturing your accounts. Because you get more reorders. There's, there's just so many answers. Like you said, we can spend the entire time. Yeah. I'm going off on tangents. No, no, no. I told you this would That's happen. great. That's great. <laughs> fun. Those are great rides. Speaking of, you have a 90% reorder rate. That's astounding. Yeah, it's So huge. I have so many questions. So what do you attribute this to? You hinted at it earlier with the buying experience. Are there some other keys uh-huh. to what you've, your team has discovered in terms of creating an exceptional reorder rate? Our reorder rate is high. Because first off, we create value. So if it makes if it makes dollars, it makes sense. We don't get an incredibly high reorder rate because we're overpricing our items. We're incredibly competitive. This is a competitive market. Mm-hmm. So our pricing is wildly competitive. Secondly, we invest heavy on the back end. To me, and I'm sure every company out there is going to say this, we have the best account managers in the industry. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe that. I think that our people are that good that if I were an end user and, you know, and we fit, I'm not saying that, you know, the CEO of McDonald's is a perfect fit, but if, if I were an end user and I was dealing with one of our account managers, I would find absolutely no reason to go elsewhere. What makes them so exceptional yep. is this? Is this their response times? Is there, what, what is it about it's, them? it's their response times. It's their knowledge. Most importantly, it's how much they care about their accounts. Yeah. You, you can't teach that. Right? You can't teach somebody to care about their accounts. It's a natural state of being to care about what your client is going through. The product is just an end result. The sale is an end result. Whenever we bring somebody on, whenever we bring somebody on, we have a few people going through this now. The first thing I always say is don't worry about the sales. Don't worry about the sales. They'll come. Worry about the process. Worry about the market. Worry about understanding the product. Worry about your clients. Worry about understanding your clients. Yeah. Worry about what you're going to say to them when they ask you a question that you, you don't know the exact answer. There's so many things you have to learn. If your process is good, your sales will naturally come. And I say this about any business in the world. It is not just our industry. Mm-hmm. You should worry about the process and the sales will naturally come. Listen, we're in the United States of America here, right? Yeah. Like business is is fleeing. Ever. This, is, this is a great great country to do business. So it will come. You're validating an assumption I've had for years, and that is many in the industry want to relegate transactional e-commerce sales as non-relationship driven, as non-consultative. But several years ago, I had this assumption that the website, the website was simply the front door. And that was just the entry point to make an, an introduction to human beings who are going to carry the relationship through just like any other, tra- the most traditional distributorship. Am I wrong about that assumption? Not at all. I'm totally with you. So I'm going to take it just one step back and tell you that I don't believe I am in the e-commerce business. If you look at our website, we don't really have a shopping cart and we've got a few websites and we make almost no transactions online without a face-to-face, and what I call face-to-face is actually on the phone, but without having a a face-to-face conversation. And so the reason for that, and this kind of leads me into all these other, you know, competitors with with Amazon going into merch and Walmart going to, we're not e-commerce. It is simply a platform to see what we have, what we can offer, and how we can offer it. That's it. It's an informational site that you can log through and see what kind of products we have. As a matter of fact, I, I've been in this business, like I said, about 11 years. I go on a lot of these competitors and they're not, let's, let's use uh, for imprint as an example. I think that they, they have a great uh, website. They do a ton of business. Sometimes it's difficult for me to navigate right. websites like that right. and purchase and check out 
a product. To me, we are in such an amazing, that's why I love this industry. We're in such an amazing place where you still need the account coordinators, account managers to make sure that the client understands that their order is being taken yeah. care of. Okay. It's wildly important. And this whole going online and buying and uploading your logo and all that, it's absolutely not the way it has to be. Speaking of your team, you have 15 employees and how are these roles split up? What's your infrastructure like? You know, what percentage of these are roles versus, you know, sales roles versus admin and operations? Do you do program business like company stores? It is split up unevenly skewed towards uh, account management and sales. So common skew, actually, I'm going to throw that in there, has made it very, very easy for us to have a really cool transitional process between what we used to call production managers, and those are the people uh, that would follow the order after the sales uh, person would place it and make sure that the order gets placed on time. So before common skew, and you know, you're going to laugh at this, and I'm sure everybody used Excel spreadsheets, right, right. to place orders right. and everyone kind of had these old school templates. And so what we did was the salespeople would place the order on a spreadsheet. They would email that spreadsheet along with artwork to the production people. The production people would take that spreadsheet and the artwork, open QuickBooks, create, their, create the invoice, create the purchase order, follow up with the vendor, follow up with the client, charge the credit card. I mean, it was like they were doing 80% of the work. It was incredible. Yeah. And it, it, it was crazy because the salespeople had almost no control of their orders. Do you know how much it sucks when you're in sales and you have no control of your orders? And that to me is why CommonSkew has been an incredible asset to us. So now think about the transitional process. When you are in a sales environment and you're an account manager or an account coordinator, which we differentiate the two, and I'll tell you how in a second, the account coordinator or manager writes up the order, chooses their own vendors, sends in their own purchase order, sends in their own invoice, gets the order paid, and all the production person has to do is follow up that order and ensure that it delivers on time. And that's it, and the order's done. And so now what we've established is that that same production person, that is an incredible way to teach the market, teach the business, teach the industry, and possibly move them along into sales. And just so you know, some of our best account managers came from production. Yeah. That's been my experience too, absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah. It's a, what an easy and efficient way to teach the market. Teaching the sales we can teach, but teaching the market and understanding our process and understanding what we do and how we do it. And this can be an incredibly uh, convoluted marketplace for somebody who's just entering it with all the suppliers and the distributors and the, and the imprinting types and the embroidery shipping, you know, shipping to embroidery vendors and, and pad printing vendors. I mean, it can be a really crazy. What better way to learn the market than in the production area. Yeah, absolutely. And so to go back to your question, sorry, that again, another Jake tangent, but to go back on your question, we split it up amongst about, I'd say 50% is sales, 20% is production, which we call production. I don't, I'm not even certain that that's the perfect name for it, right. but right. you know, the order support right. and 20% in the art graphic design, uh, let's just call it the design department. And what does that leave us with 10% of everything else? 
whether it be advertising, social. Do you develop in-house or do you have, do you outsource your development? We outsource our development right now. We're actually considering bringing all of that in-house mm. right now because to bring it back to what I said earlier, because we don't consider ourselves e-commerce, I would rather put that budget towards customer experience. Developing outside of outside of the office really gives us the freedom to first off choose who we work with, how we work with them, get awesome ideas from different types of people. And so now what what we're likely going to do is hire an in-house development director who will be outsourcing a lot of the work, but it will all go through him. So we're kind of, we're kind of messing with that right now. Right, right. But again, because we're so we're not we're not transactional, right? So it's not like people can go online and, you know, they check out and then oh my god, the car's not working. We, we don't really do a lot of that stuff. Not yet anyway. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, I, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that business because, you know, it's it's a who has the cheapest product, who can get it to me, you know, who's going to make it the easiest to check out and where can I get the best price? And to me, it's like I would rather run an efficient growth structured business than a slightly less efficient advertising structure where you have to spend and spend and spend and spend and then hopefully or you know you're getting these people back and then you know hopefully some of these accounts are growing but if they're only using you once it's really hard to grow the accounts and you know so on and so forth so i'm not a huge fan of the of checking out online in the promotional products industry I'm really not. It's very interesting to me, and perhaps this is just a reflection on how much I've compartmentalized businesses in the industry, because you spend tons on advertising online, like mm-hmm. an e-commerce transactional site, yet your structure, the structure of your business is consultative. Yes, you're exactly right. It is. And it will continue to be. To me, that is a fascinating hybrid, um, uh, hybrid model. Let me ask this. Through your growth as a professional and also as a business, have there been big breakthroughs in your development that led to significant scale? It seems as though not all businesses, but many businesses can look back, especially in a 10, 15 year period, and they can see these watermarks. And maybe it's not in terms of gross sales. Maybe it's in terms of a strategic position they took in the marketplace, or maybe it's a shift in the way they restructured the infrastructure of their business, or maybe it was a a breakthrough in understanding the advertising model better. Has there been a few of those watermarks that led to who you are today? I hate to talk about this again because it's going to sound like the, you know, I'm on here to push common skew, but I have to tell you, (laughs) common skew has really been an incredible, and I, I use these words very precisely, stabilizing growth asset. Mm. And here's what I mean. When Common Skew came along, and, and why is it, why do I talk about Common Skew more than I talk about development? Because internally, it changed our entire dynamic. When you can give your people control of their orders to the extent that Common Skew gives you those controls, it is an incredible factor in growth. And I could tell you over the last, let's just take it to two years because, you know, 
eight, 10 years ago, there's, it was such a different marketplace. I could tell you that right. once we, you know, we hired one agency and they really boomed us, then we fired the agency. And then, you know, we had a, an incredible process that you, you were able to view the quote and then check out, you kind of click the link. It brings you back to the website to check out where it was kind of transactional, but not really. Cause you still had a comment. There's, there's a lot of things that we did that are really kind of boring that actually don't even apply today because technology changes so fast. Mm. But I can't tell you over the last two years, the greatest asset that we've had, and we've been common school for about what, it, I don't know if you can look at our comments, is it about a year, year and a half? It has really benefited our infrastructure. And to me, infrastructure and process is more important than anything else that you do. You can't, it's, it's the fundamental base of your business. If you can change the fundamental base of your business, you do it. You do it every time. If it's obviously going to impact you in the positive, but you you change the fundamental base of your business every time. I mean, from creating quick presentations, allowing our, because remember, I, I think last time we chatted, I told you, we did not hesitate on common skew. So it wasn't like, it, it's funny because when I sat with Catherine the very, very first time, you know, a year year and a half ago. And her first words to me were, hey, Jake, uh, maybe just you try it and one other person on your team before you get the whole office to do it. And then I, I, yeah, I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, so that isn't at all what we're going to do. Everyone has one weekend to figure out how common skew works. And then we're going to, on Monday, we're changing the entire, the entire office. So it's, I, I can tell you, and I'm, I don't mean to turn this into a, you know, push common skew on other... It has really changed the way our infrastructure goes day to day. And to me, has been an incredible factor in, an, in allowing us to grow, hire, do more revenue. It has made the entire process entirely transparent. That's the truth. We hear that a lot. You've articulated that very well, though. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate that. Let me, Absolutely. Let me ask this. Do you have particular verticals that you concentrate on? Are there niches within your business nope. model? No, nope. we don't. We, we, we don't focus on verticals at all, simply because our industry, to me, it's not completely formatted for verticals. And we have, if, I, if you can sell t-shirts, for example, to a, a youth camp, you can sell them to a university. You can sell them to a, so we don't really focus too much on verticals. Maybe it's because it's the size of our business. If our si you know, if our business was in the closer to 50 to 75 employees, it'd be a little easier to distinguish verticals and just go after yeah. specific. But I don't, I don't see why at this stage, we need to have a particular focus on verticals. I should have asked this to begin, but it leads me to the question of defining promo dealer and what is your unique value prop? Awesome question. And I feel like every year to two years, um, we change it. Right. <laughs> That's the truth. Right. Because of the way technology, I feel like you have to change it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Ten years ago, it was price. We were easily the least expensive for a very particular product. You couldn't get it any cheaper. We still were working on 60% margin. So it was, it was price. I feel like today... Our value proposition, and we try to get this across to our customers as often, as quickly, and as efficiently as we can. We are the easiest company in the world. I'm sorry, easiest promotional company in the world to do business with. Mm. And it may sound like a very simple proposition, but it isn't. I feel like our industry is so incredibly fragmented. We have so many 
distributors that are one stop guy who's working out of their basement and they're going, you know, almost like a door to door setting and they don't really have people that are following up on orders. And so it makes the rest of us look not very good. And it, it makes the industry as a whole seem as though the entire industry is made up of one guy. And, and it's just not the case. We try to run our industry in a very agency related model. So we make it as simple as possible to order some damn t-shirts yeah like it should we should be taking up five percent of your week and not a single minute longer than that and it is really easy to win clients that way let me tell you we are the least important part of your advertising strategy we don't need to hide that fact i'm good with that i'm good with that because (laughs) that part that part makes my job easy and it makes your job easy. And if my 5% of your advertising budget is going to make your life hell, then you're buying from the wrong person. Yeah. Great. Period. Great point. My ears perked up as I'm sure 90% of the audience did when I heard 60% margins. Are you commanding margins that are that healthy today? So 60% is uh, where we started and it was right around that that percentage uh, 10 years ago in the USB flash drive business. Right. Okay. Okay. So when we did, yeah, it was it was incredibly high margins, and that's and that brings us all back to risk. It doesn't take a you know a, an incredibly big risk to tell you that we're going to invest X, we're going to get X t- X times two at sixty percent margins. Right. I mean, you you've got a hell of a business business model, especially when you're in freaking college. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so and that's what I mean by the value proposition is going to continue to change. Every two years, your value prop needs to change. I just read this morning that WPP is down 12%. It hasn't been down 12% for like 25 years. You're talking about one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world. Why? Because they never changed their value proposition. That's why. Let's shift gears a little bit. And I just know you're going to have a great answer for this, but we kind of touched on this topic (laughs) earlier. Rumors persist that Amazon is in the industry already or about to burst on the scene. And we read the recent news of Walmart's division in the promotional products industry. Are you threatened at all by these announcements or these opportunities? Do you not even think about them? I love this question. And I love this question because it is so relevant and at the same time, so wildly irrelevant. And, I, and I'm going to explain to you why. Right. Amazon and Walmart, right? Let's, let's break this down into two points. And you'll stop me if I'm going too long, but I love no, this, this freaking question. So, <laughs> so Amazon and Walmart, right? You're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. There is no amount of revenue that's going to change the succession of our business, meaning you're still going to have logos, you're still going to have PMS colors, you're still going to have turnaround times, you're still going to be working with a million different vendors, you're still going to have embroidery issues, you're still going to have inventory issues, you're still going to... There is absolutely nothing that Amazon and Walmart will be doing today that will affect anybody's business. So when I hear that Amazon and Walmart are going into the good for them, I, here's, here's when I will be concerned. I will be concerned when a billion dollars is anything to Amazon and Walmart. And here's what I mean by that. Amazon and Walmart will only go into businesses that will affect their bottom line greatly. The, and it has to affect their bottom line greatly without creating an enormous impact on their distribution channels on their process. Today, that bottom line for neither Amazon nor Walmart 
will be affected in the least by the promotional products industry. And to me, it isn't enough of a factor for them to really put big money. Listen, if I'm Amazon Walmart, yeah, so I'll try it. it. There is no greater barrier to entry for the guy working in his basement or, or for Amazon and Walmart. And that is the unbelievable beauty of our business. So for anybody listening, there is nothing. Focus on your process. There is absolutely no advantage to going to Walmart over going to Foreign Print, over going to any one of these transactional web, websites. Yeah. I have... Absolutely no fear. Now, listen, talk to me again in 10 years when Amazon needs to add a billion dollars to their bottom line and they will do absolutely anything to do it, then then we're talking about something. But you're talking about a $26 billion industry where the barrier to entry is almost non-existent. Staying in the industry is very difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Entering the industry is not. So yeah. to, to, you know what I mean? To, to sit there and, and worry about, about giants like Amazon and Walmart, they have, yeah. they have absolutely no regard right now for our industry. It is absolutely not a concern. For people that say it's a concern, I would love to know why, because they have nothing yeah. of a value add except for, yeah, they have a big client base, big deal, big yeah. deal. The thing that bothers me the most about the Amazon and Walmart discussion is that it keeps us away from building better processes for our customers. It's exactly. Like a red herring. It's it's a non, exactly right. non-issue for folks that are trying to really build a strong value proposition for their customer. And to me, it takes away the energy that you could pour into just building better infrastructure and processes and experiences for your customers. And, and Bobby, you're 100%. And right. I've said the same thing you did. If the office supplies companies didn't come in and take over the industry with their integration already right. into businesses, then it's not happening from the retail giants. Absolutely. It's, yeah. th- this is such a non-issue. Yeah. And, and that's why I say it's relevant and not relevant. What makes it relevant is people are actually talking about it. Like, who gives a shit? Right. You're talking about something that is absolutely right. not, it has nothing to do with your day. It has nothing to do with your week. It has nothing. Right. Yeah, they entered the business. Congratulations. If I told you Sony Pictures was entering the promotional products industry, would you even bat an eye? Right. Not, not for a right. second because it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Right. Right. And that, unfortunately, it's, what's funny is that irrelevance makes it relevant. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's wild. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a ridiculous question to ask at this point in the conversation because I think I know how you feel. How do you, confident <laughs> do you feel about the future of the business? But let me ask it a little more specifically. Where do you think there are opportunities in the business? Do you feel like the tr- traditional roles of distributor and supplier are threatened at all? Or do you see more growth into overseas, into direct purchasing? What kind of changes do you see in the future for your business and for the industry at large? If you are not excited about the promotional industry, you are insane. And there's so many reasons for that, okay? Specifically, there are the common skews of the, there are companies out there that are wanting to make your life, I, to make your life as easy as humanly possible. The future of this business, to me, you will have those transactional guys. And as a matter of fact, I hope I didn't come across in this entire interview that I don't like that business model the transactional business model. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's just not my business model. Right. So when I look at this industry, the account management portion of this industry is in for such a, what are we, 20, what is this industry, $22 billion, give or take? Am I about right? Right. What's the biggest player in the industry, 300 million? Right. Is that about right? That's right. Well, there's, 
just $21.7 billion for the taking? How on this planet could you not be excited about an industry like that? I go back to, to my WPP uh, conversation earlier. That entire industry would probably, I don't know, half a, bi- uh, half a trillion dollars. It is controlled by four or five enormous advertising firms. Right. We don't have that. Right. We have 20, over $20 billion that is to be distributed among a few people who will understand this process, who will understand the margins in our industry are incredible. Yeah. They are really freaking good. We're not working on 10% margins here. All you have to do is drive your process to make your customer happy. That's it. It's that easy. Like, like the entire industry summed up in one freaking sentence. Just figure it out. You have Common <laughs> Skew there right. who's, who's literally built like an entire infrastructure to continue to make your customers happy. You have vendors out there who invest their own money, not your money, their own money to turn around orders in 24 hours. On this planet, what would make you not excited about this industry? 90% of the people are doing the work for you. You just have to be good at talking to clients. My goodness. You know what I mean? Yep. Fascinating talking to you because if you get deeply involved in the industry or if you've been in it a while, your temptation is to become cynical. And talking to you and the optimism that just exudes from you reminds me that we have to be careful of the myths that we perpetuate in this industry because uh, it can be a little bit of an echo chamber. And so we're worried about the threats. We're worried about products and recalls and the, 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 the news that circulates, but it's such a fascinating business. And I love what you talked about, mentioned just there about how technology has made it such a fun business to be in. You could not do the things Ugh. 10 to 15 years ago that you can do now. The work from anywhere, build any size of business you want with your Absolutely. options in markets and niches. And there's just, it's just a great, it's a great time. It really is. To be in this industry now is incredible. It is such a fun time. And honestly, for the people that are just entering the trade, God bless it. You should be so freaking excited about it. There is so much going on in this industry right now. And and the wildest thing about it is how good our vendors are making us look, how little of the work us distributors are actually doing. It's incredible. I mean, it's the truth. It's incredible. It's incredible. I love it. How is there not, how could you not be excited about something like that? You're talking about 24 hour ship time. Like I'm I'm placing an order today. My customer gets it tomorrow or they get it the next day and they think I did. I mean, it's an incredible thing. I sent them a presentation. Like it took me four hours, but common school lets me do it in five minutes. What, what on this planet is there not to be excited right. about? It's incredible. Jake, I need to make a connection to something here because I think it's, I think it underlines who you are. But you were born in Russia. I mentioned this in the bio. You immigrated yeah. to the U.S. when you were three years old. Your family, with your aunt as sponsor, lived in a one-bedroom apartment with another family of four. And you grew up in this country with an eye towards sales. Who are your heroes and, and how did this experience shape Jake today i could tell you i don't i'm not here to like cause any controversy and and i say this with incredible respect and a little very slight comical sense but to me there is like nobody who loves this country more than immigrants and i say in a very you know in a very like non-disrespectful way i say it meaning that when i when me and my family came to this country the things that we had to escape are incredible. And so my dad told me when I was really, really young and I was still going to school and I wasn't like the greatest student ever. And um, I, I, I was saying, my, my dad said to me, he goes, Jake, all the hard work in your life has already been done. I did it for you. 
I took you out of a country and we left the, the former Soviet Union. I took you out of a country that gave you nothing, nothing to a country that gives you everything. And all you have to do is bend down and pick it up. It's right in front of you. All you have to do is bend down and pick it up. And so when you ask how that shaped me, that didn't shape mm -hmm. me. That made me. That made me. That is the, the outlook that I have here. And that's why I keep going back to, guys, we live in the United States of America. We live in a country of every freedom you can ask for. Every situation here has an answer. Every situation in this country has an answer. And when you have a product that is priced right, or a process that is done well, or people that respect their clients, you can do business here. And so when you come from a place that gives you literally, not, and not only gives you nothing, but takes everything away from you, and you come, you come as an immigrant to a country like this, all you need to do is work just a little bit. The harder you work, the more you're going to get back. That's it. That's like the core of the United States of America. It's an incredible thing to, to have a foundation on. You work, the harder you work, the more you get back, period. That's all it is. And when you, ha when you have an outlook as a little kid and all you're being told is you damn well better be kissing the ground you're walking on because you have no idea how special it is here. It is. It really is special. How can I possibly have a different outlook than what I have coming from the background that I came from? And, and by the way, uh, you had mentioned that I lived in like a one-bedroom apartment with my aunt, four people. So that is totally not unusual. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, just so I don't sound special or anything, that, that is what all of us did. And, and I'm a, a Russian Jew. And so the way you come into this country is you, you kind of have to get sponsored. My aunt sponsored, sponsored us. And the craziest thing is my aunt also sponsored my fiance and we didn't meet until two years ago and it's just wow. like the craziest story but um yeah yeah it's it's insane and somehow through friendships and so on and so forth but um totally not unusual it's a it's a regular thing and my dad you know came to this country and my mom and um they kind of went door to door looking for jobs and it, it's completely not unusual i didn't have like you know a, a horrible upbringing or anything but it was tough when we first came we came with like a few hundred bucks that's oh, it what a great in a one bedroom apartment. what a great story Jake, this has been, we could go for another hour. This has been an honor to talk to you. I've, I'm so proud to know you. I really, I like I said, I haven't really done this in the past. And, and you are so easy to talk to, Bobby. It's, I, I probably could do this for another two hours. That is the yeah, absolute great, truth. Good, Honestly, good, I enjoy good know, it that man. much. You know, as I always say, guys, keep up the good work. And I'm so psyched about uh, the future of this industry. And the, the last thing I want to say is, guys, we're all here to help each other. And I love what you're doing, Bobby. I love what you guys are doing at Common Skew. And if we continue to perpetuate this positive attitude of our industry, um, it's only going to benefit everybody. Everybody. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right, Jake. Thank you so much for your time, man. You got it, Bobby. Thank you. And we'll talk soon, okay? Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SkewCast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SkewCast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening.